0: Hi, my name is Beth, and I am the host of the Seeking Light podcast. In a world that presents us with growth and challenges, there is tremendous light. And this podcast is a source of light through scriptural insights that I have gained through the years. Come join me as I share light in a world that can sometimes be confusing. I would like to welcome all of you today to Friday's podcast interview. Um, I have had the privilege to read a book that a friend of mine recommended called Liberated from Silence. And the author is Tessa Jensen. And today you're going to hear Tessa's story. Um, I think it's so perfect that it's falling on the Friday before Easter Sunday because I feel like the savior has liberated us all. And I feel like Tessa's story is absolute liberation. And it's a journey and it's still a process. And I am so grateful that she took the time to uh, do this podcast interview. So Tessa, welcome to the podcast. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Okay, Tessa, um, before we get started, I want to read an opening part that you wrote in your book, just so our, my listeners will kind of get a gist of, um, if you don't mind. Sure. The, very, the very beginning in your of your book, um, this is what you said. Finally, three years ago, I decided to believe Jesus Christ and stop putting limitations on his power by trying to convince him that He had wasted his blood on me. Instead, I chose to strive to fully align my will with His with necessitated which necessitated a significant change in habits of thought and action. I had to learn to prioritize my relationship with Him above all else including sleep and the emotional crutch of binge eating. I once thought to wait upon the Lord meant waiting my turn to talk to him like a kid who stands in the line to see Santa Claus until my turn came. I told myself I had to live on whatever spiritual strength fell in my direction. Happily, I was wrong. Jesus had already chosen me before I was born as evidenced by the scars in his hands, wrists and feet. The one who decided the quality of our relationship was me. It is still me with this in mind. Please remember that I am speaking from my perspective and experience alone as soothing as it may be for me to pretend to know every variable motivation and intention in the minds and lives of those involved in my account. I do not. I cannot. I can only write what I know. May you find a glimmer of Christ's light through my words. So Tessa, with my podcast being Seeking Light, I thought that was a perfect opening and I did, I want you to know that I found a lot of light in your words. So thank you. So let's start. How did you, how long did it take you to write this book and how did you decide on the title of the book?
1: This book, this is my running joke with myself because I think I'm very funny. Um, It's like a lifetime and three months. So this particular version um, probably took two years or so to get through the first 120 pages. And then I was tired of this project being in the back of my mind and feeling like I needed to do it. So anyway, I found some resources and I it was a godsend and miracle after miracle with how quickly the editing editing process went, getting these discombobulated thoughts down, explaining things in a way that I'd been struggling to explain them. Um, and so yeah, a lifetime in three months.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And how did you pick the
1: title? Uh, the title, this sounds so cheesy. The title picked itself (laughs) because I did not have a title going in. I did not have a title when I was done, um, with the, first draft. And then I kept noticing as I was going through that I used the word silence or quiet or something, some sort of synonym repeatedly. And then I thought, well, not only am I no longer afraid to speak, but when I thought God was quiet, like I have liberated his voice in my life because I have allowed his voice in. So liberating my own silence and also liberating the savior's silence.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Okay. I want you to start in the beginning. Can you kind of just so everybody can understand why the book, why the title, why it all, what let's start when you were a young girl. So begin your story. Um,
1: so when I was a young girl, I was born to, uh, to people who had immense emotional and mental struggles. Um, they divorced shortly after I was born. They were married other people who had similar, well, maybe not similar, but they also had mental and emotional struggles. And so there was just a household rampant with abuse and gaslighting and um, religious manipulation. Uh, very much like you're too emotional, you're too sensitive. You will think how we tell you to think um, using the Holy Ghost to excuse behavior to include abandonment um, and abuse, and um, sort of like putting, which I think happens in a lot of abusive homes where parents blame the children for how the parent is treating the children. You know, um, where, so I truly thought like, this is all my fault. Everything is my fault. I'm not smart enough. I'm not um, good enough. If I were, if I were someone else, my parents would not be doing this. Um, And there are just so many feelings of worthlessness and feeling like, well, like my mother abandoned me when I was four and like children do because they're cognitively not developed enough to understand that someone's mentally ill, they blame themselves and so carrying around this burden of like my i'm not good enough for my own mother to love me and then she cited the holy ghost is the person who told her to leave so it became this whole mess of religious confusion and just constantly feeling like i can't step to the right or to the left without being condemned i can't um have an opinion i can't sp- speak i can't i can't even perform my way into love right like i still will do that to this day being like well if i just achieve something and i know it's an unhealthy thought pattern but it's i'm working on it but it truly was like okay i'm gonna earn your love now and then when that didn't work you know it's just this constant seeking for love um and it really just families splintered apart. You know, this is almost an inevitable, um, train crash and, uh, and actually it was generations of abuse that all kind of blew up in one family. And I happened to be a member of that family.
0: Now share with everyone a little bit, you had, uh, two siblings. Yes.
1: Yeah. So my father and his first wife, They had three children me my older brother and my older sister and there's only 13 months between each of us so we were all born very rapidly Um, so there was three of us and then when my father remarried his second wife had a daughter and they adopted each other's children Um, so we were adopted by her he adopted his second wife's child and then together they had a son
0: now, you're talking about the second wife. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you at four years old, your mother tells you that the Holy Ghost has told her that she needs to go and marry this other man and that she's going to give up her rights to you. And so, mm-hmm. you are allowed in the book, Dolly, um, mm-hmm. you are allowed to be adopted by Dolly, and then you become more of a blended family. Correct. So, can you share a little bit about? when you're four years old, five years old, six years old, you're heading into school. You're trying to understand. I mean, you're not seeing your, your mother, your biological mother. What are some things that are happening in your life as a young child with Dolly and your dad? Um, there was just,
1: I, I, but my constant memory is just Standing and crying, just crying all the time. And I think my empathic little body was picking up all of this feedback about the unhealthy things going on. And I just, I was constantly like thinking to myself, well, I don't want to make this person mad. I don't want to hurt this person. So there was just all it was, was like two people who didn't even like each other. They didn't even like each other when they got married. And so it was just a a house of constant contention and anger and blaming. And um I think the kids were caught in the crosshair and it was like it was a miserable existence. Like I hated it.
0: Was I just wanted to go to school. Was there some people in your life? I know you talked about your grandma later on, later on in your life, but and your aunt. But can you share, were there some people, adults that you felt a love from or a light when you were with them? Anybody like at church that maybe you didn't mention in the book, or can you share a little bit about them and what they did for you?
1: I can remember my first memory. Um, I was about seven or eight and there was a woman at church and there was a lot of people who were kind. I mean, generally speaking, they were kind or whatever, but this woman seemed to take an interest in me and she was so kind and interested. Like she would just ask me questions that were very specific, not just how are you doing, but she knew that I love to read. And so we would talk about books or she knew that I love to eat. So she would like make me cookies or like somehow she would just go, went out of her way to let me know that I was seen without... Um, doing it in a way where my parents would notice and then be bothered that someone was being nice to me.
0: Wow. Did your grandma, did you have many interactions with your grandma at that young during those younger years? Yeah, I mean, I f- I feel like we saw them frequently, but I don't know that
1: we really developed a relationship until I was older.
0: Okay. And then what about your aunt up in Alaska? Did you have much interaction with her? No. This is the wild thing where I feel like this was
1: such a blessing from God because that they took me into their life because my uncle, uh, my father's brother, she, or excuse me, he was in the air force. So they were living all over the world, Japan, Texas. Um, so I mean, they came through, I can remember them maybe two or three times and they were always kind. And, um, I felt very safe and welcome in their presence. But again, it was you know, 12 hours here, 12 hours there. Um, I didn't really know them at all. Right.
0: Okay. So as you become a teenager, can you just kind of share? And if you feel comfortable sharing some of the stories of, you know, teenager and heading into your young adult, like some of the, the coping mechanisms that you used to try to get through the pain and, and how they affected you. And also just the path the moving around, the resetting yourself in new locations and all those things that you had to experience? Yes.
1: So, um, I, I think when I was about, um, 15 or 16, I had just decided that, um, I wasn't capable or allowed to like rely on other people. So or, or other people were not safe to go to. And so I just sort of turned inward on myself. Um, and because there was this, well, you need to forgive. That's what we were told. Like we must excuse abuse. And we do that by forgiving and by forgiving, we mean, we just let other people do whatever they want. And you just sit there and take it. Um, and if you stand up for yourself, you're not being forgiving. (laughs) And so instead I turned all that hatred inward on myself. Um, And I would, for one, I don't, I didn't write this in the book, but I would like beg for attention from boys who clearly wanted nothing to do with me. (laughs) Like, um, you know, so that wasn't healthy, but then also like the binge eating, um, just, like eating my feelings away to like all, I I just had like a sick stomach and a sick brain. Um, And then I went to three different high schools in three different states, but there's a lot of truth to the adage, wherever you go, there you are. Like I could not, yes, I was moving to different situations, but the pain was like woven into my body Um, and I didn't know how to get it out. And I didn't know what to do with it. And so I just turned inward on myself, um, self-harm in in various ways, body dysphoria, eating obsessions, all those sorts of things.
0: Yeah. That, that leads me to the, you know, when your mom, when your biological mother, uh, left her second husband and you moved to Utah with your grandma and grandpa, her parents, Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? I thought that was really fascinating. they they belong to a company. and oh my gosh, talk about it. Tell us about it.
1: Oh, my goodness. In retrospect, I'm like, the level of dysfunction was astronomical, but at the time I did not understand. So they they were like these nutrition specialists or supplement salespeople for this company called Supergreens. And um I should back up and say that they, were obsessed with their weight like to weighing themselves once or twice a day um shaming themselves and everyone else for having an appetite like it was the weirdest thing in the world so when i go there they they had this super greens drink that they swore by and it just looked like alfalfa seeds that they that they scooped into some water it was more than alfalfa seeds but that's basically what i remember Um,
0: and how old were you, Tessa? How old were I you? I was th- 16. 16. Yeah. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. And so like, oh, you can lose so much weight and be a better athlete and it'll cure your personality if we don't like that. And like all of these things, it'll cure anxiety and depression. And they even like sent some to president Hinckley for his wife who had been dying. It, I mean, they were really special. Um, and so of course they dubbed me as someone who could lose some pounds. You know, I was all like five foot six and 145 pounds. Um, and that was too heavy. And so I like, okay, well you're a pocket person. Like my grandma's actually a pocket person. I could put her into my pocket. Like I'm just built bigger than you are. I am so sorry, but I, I didn't understand that at the time. So I'm like, you're right. I am a fat cow. And so, oh, and then they told me my cheeks were jowly like Boyd K Packer. Um, so here I go again, trying to earn love and I drink this powdered drink for three days. It's like, Oh, you'll lose weight. You'll feel so wonderful. Well, I drank water. All I was drinking was water in this powdered thing. So maybe, maybe, maybe 50 calories in three days. I was remember laying on their stairs, like just sprawled across the stairs. My vision was blurry. I had no energy, but I was cleansing my body. And I remember my grandfather being like, look at your self-discipline. And I'm like, I, someone's approved of me I've starved myself and then the crazy thing is so after all of this starving myself whatever then they provide an abundance of junk food like here's donuts here's ice cream here's cookies here's candy eat all you want and in retrospect I'm thinking if why did you watch me starve myself for three days to the point of being incapacitated and then provide me with like all of this junk, which, what does a starving person do? They eat. And so it like that just, and then I got into this really unhealthy, like, well, I can just drink my super greens and it'll take all this gross stuff out of my cells. And then I could just starve myself for three days. If I wanted to lose this 10 pounds I've now gained in four days, like it just, and like the, the brain games and then the constant criticism in the mirror, the, the weighing the, like, I remember thinking, I think there's actually a picture on the internet of a little girl like trying to cut her fat off with scissors. I remember being like, if I could just like cut this off of me, if I could just be less fat, my grandparents would love me. My anxiety would go away. My heart would heal. Like I was looking for a number on a scale to give me permission to heal.
0: Did you feel that way when you moved up to Alaska? Uh, Was it Anchorage? Is that correct? Uh, Fairbanks. Fairbanks. I'm sorry. Okay. When you moved up to Fairbanks and how old were you at that time? 17. 17. So you had, um, you go up there. Did you feel those same feelings at times when you were at your aunt and uncle's? Was it something you kind of kept hidden from others? Um, what? Yeah.
1: I mean, I still had those feelings and, but to, to their credit, they did not have a house with a food obsession issue you know i remember my aunt she'd have a drawer of candy and she was like yeah if it's you want a piece of candy have a piece of candy you know like if we're not we're not making food an issue and people just ate when they were hungry and it wasn't wasn't a big deal but i still had all of that inside of me which is embarrassing super embarrassing um and and it's very hard to articulate the depth behind that in in the moment and so there was still the food problems. I would say it was a little—it was a little bit better because I didn't have adults constantly giving me the reminder. Um, but it's still—I mean, it was took years, years, and it, like even now, it's not necessarily gone. It's a lot better. I don't do like the binge eating um, and stuff, but it's still like I st- every once in a while—not daily, even—but every once in a while, it's like well. If you were just thinner, all your problems would be gone, you know? So it really was like this. I, I wrapped myself worth up in it and it has taken. So I think I look at the energy required to sustain this throughout my life. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I could have become a pediatrician like four times (laughs) (laughs) with the energy that's required
0: (laughs) to put into all the study time. Okay. Now during this time. I want to know, I know you had mentioned that there's a struggle because you're trying to forgive, keep the relationship with Dolly, your adoptive mother. You're also, you know, trying to do, you know, keep that contact with your dad. What, uh, what made you have these feelings that I got to draw back to them? Was it just because of the accountability responsibility you felt as a child from being told to honor your father and your mother?
1: I think that was part of it and then there's also like the um the emotional games of well i'm your mother so good daughters do this you know it for me it just keeps going back to the seeking of approval and thinking never thinking like there might be something wrong with them always thinking there's something wrong with me and like well this is what families do for each other families forgive Families. You know fill in the blank. and so, um, and there wasn't like just my immediate family, but like my father and his family, and like generations of, people shoving things under the rug and being like, well, you're a daughter. Daughters do this. Well, you're you know, and um, just this forced, like it's like that people want a forced, happy family without being a happy family to be in.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but then if you, if you're not happy in that family, well, that's your fault because you're being unforgiving. And so like, I don't think any, certainly I didn't want to be accused of being the mean person because I knew what it was like to be treated cruelly. And I didn't want to be guilty of being cruel. And so for fear of being accused of a crime, I did not want associated with my name. Then I was like, I'll please everyone just don't call me mean.
0: (laughs) Um, do you, can, when you think back to the years as a teenager and a child, can you recall spiritual experiences that you do know, like that, that was from God, like, you know, not the things that your father or Dolly would say to you or things that you had to do to fit this mold or that mold. Do you, can you recall though, some spiritual witnesses that you had that gave you a little bit of light in your life?
1: I believe that for me, those, those pieces of light were, um, for one, at a teacher, a couple of teachers in elementary school where they had this beautiful ability to infuse, at least me and I'm sure other students, but infuse this sense of like, you are capable and you are special. Um, And there were at least a couple other times especially as like a 12 13 14 year old where in retrospect i can see like god's love was my body screaming that something wasn't right like the the what i would say the validation of like you're not making this up in your head something is not right so even though my parents would tell me like i was being disobedient or whatever to me like the like I could not deny. I could not look away. I would not say something. I wasn't going to alter the truth to make them feel better. I mean, I would alter my behavior to make them feel better, but I wasn't going to alter the truth to make them feel better. Um, I mean, that might sound a little bit odd, but to me, that was God's hand pushing me forward because if I had just accepted like, okay, I guess this is normal. Then my spirit would have died. Like there was something would have died in me. And I don't know that it would have ever been resurrected, but I really feel like Jesus infused my soul with this, like unwillingness to submit or accept what I don't think is
0: acceptable. to bend. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Will you share with everyone then about you, you head to the U of O university of Oregon and Eugene. Okay. And you literally are having this internal battle. You're in, you're in these classes. You've got this weirdo neighbor. (laughs) So weird. He's so weird. And you have this horrible experience with him where he scares the EBGBs out of you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then that pushes you to move with your grandparents out in Junction City. Okay. Mm -hmm. So at that time, you weren't going to church regularly, correct? Oh,
1: No. No, no. The idea of our, the idea of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, especially, I was like, I would rather die.
0: Right.
1: I, I was like, no, I'm not doing it.
0: And do you want to share, share, I mean, you've kind of, you've talked about how, you know, with your parents and what they told you, there was this confusion of what that can't be right. Like the way that I, you're telling me that I have to be or to believe it doesn't align with God's way. So can you share a little bit about your kind of your faith crisis at that time?
1: Yeah, I, I think so many times I'd go to church and we'd sit there and, um, people be like, oh, the gospel is a gospel of happiness and eternal families. I'm like, there is nothing happy in my life. Our home is terrible. People someone's generally crying or running, um, away or being abused. And so to me, I like, guess it was my, my parents using religion to excuse their behavior, but also I was like sitting and I see like my dad nodding his head and other people are nodding their head. I'm like, why are we all nodding our heads? We're not happy here. And so like, why w- to me, I'm like, why would I want to be a part of a religion that claims that people are happy and I'm not happy. My family's not happy. Generations are not happy. Um, so this seems a little unhealthy (laughs) to, to go back to, um, if I know from experience that something is dangerous, why would I put myself back in a dangerous situation?
0: Right. So you move out to junction city after the weird, do you want to talk about the weird guy?
1: (laughs) Oh, he was just a pervert. Like Just an opportunist, you know, taking advantage of, of, of girls who have not been taught to um, protect themselves and who are taught to be so concerned with other people's feelings that they're not concerned with their own protection. Right. Um, Yeah, but, but I think like. And I think my aunt, she tried really hard for the year I lived there to like teach me those lessons, but I had, it had been 17 years of like not being taught that I was what that I was worth defending how to defend myself, what it looks like, um, for someone to be a predator, you know, you're like, well, if I'm supposed to keep everyone else happy, then I guess I'll just make sure that they're happy at my own expense.
0: Right. Okay. Tell, tell. You're in a class together and he sees you. Go ahead and tell it so that they kind of understand what pushed you to say, I cannot live here in this place. Cause it was kind of a nasty place, studio yeah, apartment, it, right?
1: And I had to scrub the walls when I moved into, into it. It was right across the street from like the the anyway, right across the street from the university. And this guy was in my philosophy class. And I'm outside after class and he just sort of like walks up behind me and asks if I want to go to lunch. And I really did not want to go to lunch with this guy. who was not attractive to me. Um, he just, he gave me uh, the, the creeps, but I was like, well, no one else is talking to me because I didn't really know how to have or make friends. So we go to lunch and he's like, I'm not attracted to you, but I can tell that you think I am. And I was like, okay, <laughs> he's like, I he's like, I have a girlfriend cool you know anyway but then would also be doing things that were contradictory to his statement like looking at look at looking me up and down with these hungry eyes um I almost broke out into song but anyway um so then I go he invites me to his apartment um another evening to go over our philosophy papers for the final again I didn't want to go but I was like well I don't this seemed like a last resort, and I was like, I'd rather talk to someone than no one. So I go into his apartment, and it's just greasy and gross and smelly. It's a beautiful day outside, but he has all the curtains closed. Um, and then I hand him my paper, and I have always been very reserved about sharing my writing, because to me it's like, this is my artistic outlet. This is sacred, and now I don't want you to look at it and criticize it. But anyway. Um, So he's like, look, he's like flipping through it. Like he's just looking for signatures. And first I'm like, first of all, that's offensive. (laughs) You need to read every word that I've written. You know, I'm not catching on. And then he's like, not really looking me in the eye and being all weird anyway. So then he gets up and I, he goes towards his door and I hear the deadbolt lock. And I was like, we have a problem. So I'm like trying to find all of these ways to get out. And of course we wouldn't want to be rude to someone. (laughs) who's trying to sexually assault us. So he comes back in and just sort of like standing there. And um, I'm like, well, I mean, I was like, you're fat and slow. I'm faster than you. And you look confused at this moment. So I, I dart past him and get out the door and somehow in a smooth motion was able to unlock the deadbolt and get out. And of course I'm apologizing to him like, oh, sorry, I need to go meet my sister. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. This is after he had told me, he's like, I was thinking we could just shut the lights off and touch each other. Uh, No. And so (laughs) anyway, I get out of the apartment and then shortly thereafter, I'm on a run and I fall and hurt my ankle really bad and I have to be on crutches. And I'm slowly realizing like this man can see that I live alone I'm now on crutches. I don't have, I can't ride my bike. I can't run away from him. Yes. I have my car, but it's going to take me twice as long, if not longer to get in my car, to escape. Like my, the, the studio apartment had a huge window. I mean, it was like single pane glass. And so like, now I'm in this dangerous situation. Um, and so that's why I was like, turn to my grandparents because I cannot, I'm like, if I stay here, I am just a sitting duck. Like, I wouldn't be able to sleep. Like I couldn't sleep for, until I left. Cause I was like, if I fall asleep and he, he or someone else just walks in an injured 19 year old girl by herself. So that's what happened.
0: No and boy. It was
1: out of self-preservation that I was finally like, this is not going to work.
0: Right. So you move in with your grandma and grandpa. You, you're able to lease it though, to a professor, right?
1: Yes, I'm able to sublease the apartment, which was a huge blessing in and of itself, because if they sublease it, or if I sublease it to someone and they leave it in disarray, I would have stuff to pay for those um, repairs or whatever. And so it was a really responsible gentleman. Um, and there were no problems. And it was a totally smooth transition. It took like two weeks. So
0: that, that to me, like when I read that, that was the hand of God.
1: Oh, Yes.
0: Yeah, because you'd had a year lease and just being able to find somebody, that's pretty tricky.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So when you're with your grandma and grandpa, they love you. They're good oh, to yeah. you. They're, they're kind and thoughtful and feed you and care for you. Right.
1: Yes. Yes. Can you talk a little
0: bit about them? What, what a little bit about their life and, and how you felt with them?
1: You know, I just, my granny I actually call her Grammy but for some reason in the book I called her granny anyway she is just a sassy short woman you know she she and I used to say that because she always brought up the fact that she's really short and um she just had like lo- like light in her eyes and was just cute and she's like a modern day you know the what's who's the the plunky uh, is it merriweather like the the little fairy on cinderella the blue one yeah like i don't know she just reminded me of that and she we both like have the fancy gene like we like fancy things and whatever and so she was always very loving my grandfather like just a wonderful man um at church he used to always have a bag or a pocket full of jelly bellies (laughs) <laughs> so the kids would run up to him asking for jelly bellies out of, out of his lint pocket. Oh my gosh, it was the best. Um, but they both just had a kindness about them, at least, at least in my experience with them, they both were just very kind and um, welcoming and they, they just loved me. You know, they didn't require many explanations. They didn't, um, they just love me and if we if there were topics that clearly were not for us to talk about then we're like oh let's watch a show
0: <laughs> now were they were they your father's parents or were they dolly's parents dolly's parents mm-hmm. okay so where do you think for dolly things went askew do you think it was something more of a mental disorder that caused her when she had the grandmother grammy that you're explaining What was it that was contradictory with the way Dolly behaved and how poorly she treated you?
1: Um, I think I have actually sat sat with this question a long time. I'm like, this does not make any sense Sense. like this Mm -hmm. progression. And so I truly believe that Dolly suffered from like some severe depression um, and maybe from not being able to express herself. I mean, she had a couple of tragedies that happened when she was a kid. So I don't know what went wrong, but I, I truly believe that in her case, it was a lot of like untreated and that's not an excuse either. Um, but in her case, I feel like it was a lot of untreated mental illness. And then, a lack of ability or an unwillingness to acknowledge responsibility.
0: Okay. Well, your parents or your grandparents are awesome. They are so good to you. And, and your grandma, Grammy, she says to you, Tessa, go to church, go to the YSA young, single adult. In uh, uh-huh. Eugene. Okay. So she keeps telling you that and share with everybody kind of that moment where you're like, fine, I will go, but that is it.
1: Oh my goodness. She <laughs> just see her in the, in the hallway with her dish towel, drying dishes in the hallway. Like that's where you dry dishes and she's just, Tessa. I'm like, Oh my gosh, no, I'm not going. And then, you know, she doesn't give up. She's persistent. She's a very persistent woman. And so I'm like, all right cuz I was getting to the point where I was getting really irritable but I didn't want to snap at her and um have her be on the receiving end of things that had nothing to do with her. And so I'm like, "Fine, I will go, Grammy, if you stop annoying me, I will go once and we can get this over with." And so I I went for her. I went for my for my little grandma
0: and share about the experience you had walking into the building and some of the feelings you had.
1: Oh, I wanted to vomit. It was a it was, a, it was a panic attack. I had a full-blown panic attack by the time I left. Like, just my heart was racing. And then I thought of all these different reasons where I could like lie to Grammy or like spin the truth or something to excuse myself. I was like, no, after all that my grandmother has done for me, I need to do what I told her I would do. And so it's like just the smell and the language and the furniture and the pictures and just my heart was beating in my head i felt sick but i all right i'll sit here so then of course it's fast and testimony meeting which those are can be the most awkward situations like please sit down so anyway this guy gets up and he's talking about his he's like my girlfriend or my fiance or girlfriend whoever it was um i think it was his fiance she's like he he goes she stabbed me in the back and i was like oh god what (laughs) what is going on right now and um anyway by the time all of the predictable things have been said and just there's just this predictable pattern of behavior that happens in sacrament meetings right like the way people talk and the way people move and it's just it all was very um trauma in or yeah like it was a it's tra- a trigger a, trauma response,
0: a trigger yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. Yes. A trigger. It was all very triggering, um, and miserable. And I hated it. <laughs> and I was like, this is garbage. And then I went back. So.
0: Okay. Let's talk about that because you share in the book that you continued to go back. Mm-hmm. What made you keep going back?
1: Well, I do remember There's a song, um, A Child's Prayer, that had been my favorite in primary, and those, like Heavenly Father, are you really there? That question was always in my mind, and then I I would remember the promises that I was taught in, like, my primary classes or whatever, and I was like, those were actually really beautiful promises, and this is really beautiful doctrine, if it is true, And so I remember one time I was, I had driven, this is after I went the first time I had driven to church. And then I was like, I'm not going. So I started driving away and I get on the belt line for anyone who's native to Eugene, get on the belt line. (laughs) And um, I was going, who knows where, probably out to the coast or something. And then I was just like, you need to turn around. I'm like, I don't want to turn around. you need to turn around? I don't want to turn around. But I did. And I went back and I was like, fine. And I, like a four-year-old was like, <clears throat> I'm just going to sit here. And it was Sunday school by this time. And this is when someone's, um, excuse, excuse me, someone that worked with the Bishop was like, Hey, came, came in and said, Hey, the Bishop would like to talk with you. I was like, Oh, mercy. And so, you know, I'm borderline hostile, hostile to this poor Bishop, <laughs> but he was the perfect person to talk to because he was so kind and he listened to everything I had to say, all my opinions about the church, my experience. I mean, this was over several, several conversations, but he was like, you don't, you don't need to be here. Like if, if anyone has a reason not to be inside this church building, that would be you. know, he's like, I don't think that God expects you to submit yourself to all of this. Um, Cause he could just see how painful it was just for me to enter the building every day or every Sunday. Um, And I found his response very validating. And I thought, okay, well, here's a man who is very kind and very Christ-like and didn't condemn me and didn't immediately tell me I needed to forgive. Um, And so because he was so kind and there there were other people who were very kind and welcoming also, although I didn't necessarily see that in the moment, Um, But because he was just so like, you are free to feel, I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm not going to tell you what to feel. I'm just going to be here as a sounding board and provide whatever you would like me to provide, but I'm not going to force anything. Then I was like, okay, all right. Yes. I will read the talk that you recommend. Yes. I can study that scripture. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, I can do these things because I see that you are not trying to shove something down my throat.
0: What a great Bishop. Mm -hmm. His name's Kenneth Bay. (laughs) I want you to know that I used to babysit his children all the time. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yep. And I'm super good friends still with April and we were just with them. So anyway, uh, we love them and uh, we love Ken. He, my brother worked for him anyway, love that family so much. Okay. So Tessa, you, as time is going on, there comes a young man into the YSA ward that's just temporarily there because he's doing an internship. So can you start talking about that? And also, one thing I want you to bring up too is one of the battles that you really faced because of all this, it was very hard for you to feel connected to others and build like a a friendship that you felt secure with. Can you talk about like why that was hard for you?
1: Yes. So it's difficult for me. When I I did not trust people, so that's a barrier but then i i felt like i was just i create i took up too much psychological space like i was just too loud not necessarily in um volume but in opinions or like i have a very expressive face which i can sometimes look unkind when i'm not trying to look unkind or, or whatever. And so I thought I was just too much for people. Like if I am my complete self and loud and opinionated and whatever, then these people aren't gonna like me, which could, which I did not actually know to be true. I just made this story up in my head and then operated under the assumption it was true. Um, Like, I don't have anything to contribute to this conversation. I don't care about your idle prattle about what dress you're gonna wear or who doesn't like you or, you know like your dating experiences. All of these things I used as defense mechanisms because I was like, well, if I want to be someone's friend, then what if they don't like me? So I'm just not going to even worry about that by not being, by choosing not to have friends. And then when someone was kind to me, I was like, I'm not your project. Go ahead and take your obligatory friendship out the door. I don't need it. Um, And, or I would get really paranoid or I would like just express thoughts and then be like, oh my goodness, I talk too much, I talk too much. And then it just became this very vulnerable, um, sort of like a scab that's been peeled back. That's all like fresh. And like even the gust of wind kind of makes it sting. I just felt like I was stinging all the time and it was very uncomfortable. So I just thought I'm not even dealing with this.
0: <laughs> yeah. Did you then, um, when you, when you met Eric for the first time were you live, you were living with a group of girls, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. What, what made you leave Grammy's house and, and head into, to live with some roommates, knowing that you have these feelings of a rippling effect of your, the abuse you suffered to have a disconnect in friendships. What made you choose to live with these girls?
1: So between, between my grandparents' house and and this house with the girls there, I had like lived alone in a studio, no, in a one bedroom apartment. I had like tried other things like a roommate, but we didn't actually ever have to talk to each other. We like lived in a town home. And and actually this was another God thing because my one bedroom studio apartment, the lease was coming up and I had started massage therapy school. So I couldn't afford the rent by myself anymore because I had to cut back my working hours. So, but my brother, his wife's sister had an opening in their roommate situation that they needed filled and I was like, I can feel that. And so I went and they were just they were just delightfully ridiculous people who live, I like to call it people that live out loud. They lived out loud and I was like, all right, I can be here. And I think that I had healed enough um, in a lot of ways where I wasn't as paranoid, I wasn't. Um, as quick to assume that I was someone's project, and so I lived with I lived with them, and they were very nice.
0: Okay, tell also, about what's up. Oh, Eric. Yes. Are we talking about Eric? Yes. 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 Oh,
1: Eric! I love that man. I love him so much. So we were we were going to go to the temple. We had a temple trip. The Portland Temple is like two hours away, an hour and fifteen minutes if you drive really fast. Uh, so. Eric standing in there. I walk in. He's standing there, you know. And in the singles wards in small cities, people have pretty much either you've dated them, your friend has dated them, or you're just not interested. Like, let's just be honest. It can get a little awkward. And so I'm like, oh, who's this tall drink of water over here? And he has this he has a beautiful smile. My husband has a beautiful smile. He's always smiling. Even now, I'm like, why are you smiling? But he's always smiling. His mother's the same. Um, and I could just see kindness radiate from him and I basically informed him that we were going to be friends and I mean through a series of of events and um, I just kept, kept inviting him over and well I first I invited him over when we're having lunch, dinner at, the, at this temple trip, but I didn't give him any of my contact information. So that was silly. And then I invited him over again, but didn't give him my phone number. And anyway, so he finally came over. He's very, very quiet. Um, he loves to listen. Like we're married now and he's still just very quiet. Um, and so anyway, I'm like, blah, 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 blah. And I would like be the one to text him. And usually I wouldn't just keep texting someone at this point in my life, but he kept coming over and responding and seemed really happy. Um, If you've ever seen the movie Up at the very beginning where there's that little boy and the little girl who's like, you don't talk much. I like you. And he's like, you're the most wonderful human I've ever seen. That's our relationship. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, as is not uncommon in uh, our church culture, we dated briefly and got married but i could see that eric was he had a good heart and he was intelligent and that he he treated people with kindness like if i wasn't if he didn't know i was like okay i'm not a if he didn't know i was watching him but like if we had gone to red robin or something and i'd gone to use the restroom and i came back and he was just being smiley and pleasant and kind and um there was something in my soul that was like, I need this level of gentleness and kindness in my life because I still had a lot of abrasive edges and a lot of defense mechanisms. And so I could not have been married to someone who, um, even if they're a wonderful person, had a more uh, reactive personality maybe, or like, um, anyway, a different, uh, more of an alpha, personality not that those are bad but it would not have been compatible because i it would have just been a constant like fight and i would have inflamed things all over the place and so but with eric he's just he's non-reactive and he's like i just love you like you don't need to because i'm like well this is why you shouldn't love me and i'm listing all these things off This is after we're married, of course. Well, I did this, so I don't deserve your love today. I did this, I did that. And he's like, what on earth is going on? He came from a family where it's like, both his mother and his father came from lines of like just good people. There's no perfect families, but there's good families and they are rich in good families. And so um, he was taught and I will thank his parents till the day I die and probably throughout eternity. I will thank his parents for teaching their son and to be good and to give him an example of what unconditional love looks like, because his ability to unconditionally love me and God's knowledge, like this man is who Tessa needs like all of that coming together. I'm like, heavenly father loves me so much because I would pray if I dated other people, I'm like, Oh, let's pray. Oh, this will work out. I hope this works out. And heavenly father's like, this is a good growing place, but this isn't where you're staying. I want to give you more than what you want for yourself. And I see that with Eric all the time and he's ridiculous and he is like the best dad ever. And so I just, and I don't say that to be like, oh, my husband's so wonderful, but he really is a wonderful person. And it has taken me a while to accept like His goodness, it's just him. There's not, he doesn't have an ulterior motive. He couldn't manipulate someone if he wanted to. His brain does not work that way. It does not work that way. And so um, I just love him. And he's a gift from God and his parents. And I cannot overstate the importance of just good people being good. Like the difference that makes in the world.
0: Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about something that's a little bit more difficult. Um, and cause I want to go back to Eric and, and, and your family and how it started growing, but I want to talk about when your dad, so your dad and Dolly got a divorce, your dad event, he remarried. And after he had been married, what, eight months, nine months. Yeah. Okay. Are you okay. Talking about his, his accident? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So can you just share with everybody kind of what happened and where you were at in your life at that time when all this came out?
1: Yeah. So I was 17. I had just left Utah and I was going to, cause I could not live there any longer. Um, and I was going to live with my older sister who had graduated from high school and just finish out my senior year with my older sister. Um, but on a day in june my father and his third wife um who I had met a couple of times and was a very lovely woman um and my brother were out on a motorcycle ride and uh, my father was taking a corner um and whether it was the time of day and the light got right in his eyes there was a deer he lost control of his bike i have no idea but the result was they both both he and his wife passed away. He died from blunt force trauma and she died from a head injury. Like her helmet was on the other side of the road. Um, And my sister came in, I was working at Dairy Queen at the time and she came in to tell me and I was, I just like went outside and screamed. (laughs) Like I was, it wasn't even like a sobbing scream. I just was like screaming And then because I think, like, for all of my father's faults and the damage he caused, like, I still loved my father. And unlike my maternal units, my biological and adoptive mother, there was a part of me that knew my father loved me in his broken, ill, really poor choices way. Um, And so... And it's also a lot easier to forgive someone who's very apologetic. Uh, But anyway, I was like, you know, so he he's dead, you know, and that's, that's very sudden. You know, it wasn't like he was sick and died. He just got in an accident, was fully expecting to come home and go about his business. And he passed away. And um, then all these, this family came into town. And that's when my aunt and uncle offered to bring me home with them to Fairbanks Alaska, and um, I I did not cry at his funeral, um, but I could see the effect it had on my older brother. They were like bosom friends, you know, and uh, I could just see how this was, it was just going to rip my older brother apart in ways that would not rip me apart but then it would be very difficult for me in ways that it wouldn't be very difficult for him. So it just was another, like, like, sure, why not? Let's have another tragedy. What else are we doing? we we seem a little bit bored now. So, oh my goodness. It was just one thing right after another. So.
0: And how did your dad's passing affect your decision on trying to, you know, when you decided to marry Eric, was there any part of you that, um, that things about your dad went into the choice of Eric or was it not, was it not that cerebral?
1: Oh, oh, absolutely. I was, there was definitely, I'm like, I want someone who is educated. My father was not educated. Um, that's not to say he wasn't intelligent. I think he had an undiagnosed learning disability. Um, and he was smart enough to know that he didn't know everything he should know. If that makes sense. Like anyway, um, I needed someone who was educated gentle with their words um my father was just I don't know if how big I would see him like if I wasn't if I saw him as an adult now if I would in my memory he was just this not necessarily tall but like this this towering person very very physically strong um, also took up a lot of psychological space and so I just wanted someone who was not like that and not that those characteristics of um like not that the cer- certain characteristic characteristics my father had were bad I just did not want to deal with them I'm like that would be too like triggering for me in a relationship I needed I needed gentleness I couldn't handle I, and even if it wasn't harsh I couldn't hand, handle abrupt or um or anything hinting of intolerance when it came to emotions, I could not handle that. And Eric is very opposite. So yes, there was a lot of like, I this I cannot handle, this I do not wanna handle. I don't even want, like I didn't even want the body type. I don't want the body type. I don't want like any physical similarities as far as like eye color or hair color or anything which probably sound, I don't know how that sounds, but it's true.
0: Right. Just the opposite. You wanted this, the opposite. Okay. Let's go to starting your family. So you and Eric moved down to California. Yes. Right. And you get pregnant. Yes. Okay. So you guys, what year did you get married in Tessa? 2010, 2010. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you get pregnant and you have your first baby in 2011, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. So talk about now you're becoming a mother. Mm -hmm. There were things that you were raised with that were traumatic and caused you to have different rewiring. So here you are trying to rewire yourself to be the mother you wish you had. So talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about that experience.
1: Well, I had actually made up this narrative in my head that I would, I would just be this wonderful mother because that's what I wanted to be. And I, I truly thought, well, I wouldn't have these, these reactions and I wouldn't approach things certain way because I know how that, how that feels and how unhealthy that is. But I also wasn't modeled how to approach. It was not modeled to me long enough. My aunt did model it. It just wasn't long enough um, to approach things another way. So here I am like hating myself because something is difficult for me or I don't react as gentle as I want. And so I just thought like, I am a terrible mother. (laughs) My kids deserve someone else, but I love my kids so much. um, um, but learning how to respond, excuse me, in a healthy way, both to my own humanness and to children was very difficult for me. I, I struggled a lot with, with, um, depression and different things. And so what I thought would be this super easy, glorious experience was really difficult for reasons I didn't expect. Like, I was like, oh, of course I'll be tired and it will be demanding and things like that, which I was overjoyed to do, um, at least in my brain before I had to do it. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, what on earth was that response? So it was hard because I wanted my kids to have, to not have to deal with any of the garbage that was in the background or in my life, but that garbage was still inside of me. So I had to work through that.
0: Yeah. Because you had four children in four and a half years or was it five years four, four and a half. Four and a half years. You had yeah. four children now, spiritually mm-hmm. speaking, while you're having the kids, are you feeling a welling up of struggle spiritually speaking? Um,
1: this, the real spiritual struggle did not happen until, um, I got pregnant with my fourth, I would say there was an emotional struggle, a mood struggle, a mental illness struggle up until that point. But the true spiritual crisis that happened wasn't until I got pregnant with
0: my fourth. Okay. And can you share how you went through that spiritual crisis and what kind of brought you out of it? Yeah.
1: I, I got super depressed, um, back to my weight again, because I wasn't, I was never able to really get back into the shape I wanted to, because there just wasn't enough time between pregnancies. And so I was so, this sound, it, but it's, this is true. So we'll just say it. I was so focused on what the scale said and what my waist didn't look like and have my jawline that was not as defined as I wanted it to be that I was just like consumed with self-loathing and so that meant I stopped writing I write my prayers in my journal because I have a hard time focusing so I write all my prayers out and then I highlight the answer and I highlight or excuse me I highlight my question and I highlight my answer when I find it in the scriptures and anyway but I stopped doing that so I stopped praying And then I stopped reading my scriptures and then it just went, I mean, it was a cliff drop, you know, I was like, I can't do this. And then all of the little progress I had made with church, because church has continued to, had continued to be a struggle up to this point to, to go, um, that all came full force to the front. And I was like, Eric, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I cannot, navigate all of these emotions i'm barely keeping it together um i'm fat i'm tired um god doesn't love me i mean it would it was so much backtracking so quickly was alarming and um i was like god doesn't love me he's gone i can't hear him like i'm and then i would think i am trying and when i do try i don't hear anything all i hear is satan every morning there he is with his big stupid voice in my ear And I'm like, if God loved me so much, how come he is so hard to hear? And Satan is, I hear him with zero effort. He's there, whether I want him to be there or not. And where's God? If God loves me so much, why isn't he fighting for me? Why is Satan fighting for me and winning And God's nowhere? That's
0: what I thought. So can you share what happened that one Sunday where the bishop got up and you thought, oh, gosh. Okay, what are you going to say now?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was... I remember I was wearing a black dress. Anyway, I do. I was wearing a black dress. Not important. Um, He stands up and I had been sitting in sacrament meeting and they're passing out the sacrament. And I'm looking at the awkward deacons by nature of being deacons, the 12 year olds passing the sacrament. And I'm like, oh gosh, my, like my sons are going to be deacons someday. And they're going to see their mother seething with rage over the over this whole church and they're going to feel forced to pick between their mom or the church and i'll hate whatever like i'll hate myself for whatever direction whatever decision they make it'll break my heart you know and so i was just sitting there i'm like okay heavenly father just being belligerent um and then i felt in my heart the spirit tell me like tessa you were meant to be stronger than you are and i'm like that is incredibly rude because <laughs> i am barely keeping it together. Um, And then in that same meeting, the bishop stands up. He was a new, uh, hold on. He was a new bishop at the time. And uh, he gets up and starts talking. I'm like, oh, great. Are we going to, are you going to ask us to test the efficacy of our food storage? Are we going to um, do something else extreme that actually has nothing to do with the gospel? Like just waiting for whatever he had to say. And he was like, I just challenge you to read the book of Mormon. And if you are, I invite you to read the book of Mormon. And if you do, it will change your life. And I'm like, okay, I've heard that a million times. Um, But then I thought, well, but Tessa, you could do it. Like you could read the book of Mormon, you know, from past experience, the the joy that the scriptures can bring and the answers that you get. And you know, that that is how God speaks to you because you understand love through words, like words are your language. And so I'm like, all right, I'll start reading my scriptures. And so I, before work, I would like angrily read a chapter. Um, and then pretty quickly light started coming back into my life <clears throat> and things started happening. I was able to, um, finish my college degree, which I it had always been a dream that I thought I wasn't smart enough to do. Um, and, friends. I had started making friends and I started getting control of my binge eating. Um, and like God didn't, ex- he didn't, what I love when I, in retrospect is that the savior didn't ask me to make all of these behavioral changes at once. It was like, okay, why don't we start by reading the book of Mormon? And then while I'm reading the book of Mormon, it's like, Hey, why don't we start trying to wake up? an hour earlier or let's try to drink to have like a big glass of water in the morning you know it wasn't like these extreme like diets or these extreme approaches to spirituality it was like we're going to take where you are and we're going to work with that and if you want to continue forward these are the things that will get you there if you do not want to move forward that's your that's fine too that's your choice but he gave me things that i could do that were manageable, that were already something that I would be leaning to do anyway. Like they were within my nature to do. So he worked with me with the skills I already had and increased those. Um, And that was the, and it was like, I I swear the further down we go, the, the more impossible it seems to get out. But in my experience, the deliverance is the same. Yeah. Like, and it will happen again and again
0: and again. How did the little steps that you were making affect your marriage and your mother mothering that you were with your children?
1: Um, I, so as a mother, I, I, th- I feel like God gave me a perspective, like you love your kids. In fact, I had a friend tell me we were having a conversation and she said, Tessie, your kids aren't going to be burdened by wondering why their mother doesn't love them. And she's like, as, impar- imp- as imperfect as you are, because we're all imperfect, you're giving your children the gift of a mother who loves them. That's not something everyone has. And when it's, when it is absent, it is a plague. Um, And so I think I was able to give myself some grace, which helped me see that instead of focusing on everything I was doing wrong, I could start seeing like my kids want to be around me. Like I want to be around my children. And so it stopped becoming this, it stopped being this measuring, this impossible measuring stick. Um, And then with my husband, I gradually could see like he wanted to love me. He didn't marry me because he felt bad for me. (laughs) Like he wasn't, I wasn't a constant disappointment where every once in a while I got it right. He was like, I love you because you're wonderful. And I started to believe him. I started to believe I was lovable and then was able to show love in more healthy ways and was able to express all of this love I'd wanted to give my whole life, but didn't, it wasn't received. I didn't know how to give it. And I'm like, all of this joy is in my heart and I can, I can give it to my kids. I can give it to my husband And it won't be thrown in my face. And God gives me his love. I give it to other people. And it's just this beautiful giving tree.
0: So where are you right now?
1: I would say I am in a good in a good place. Like I feel like my children, we have been able to learn to communicate with each other in a way where my kids can tell me um, the good and the bad like my, my oldest son, he'll be like, hey mom, I thought this was unfair. And I can say, I can either explain like where I was coming from, from and there's been a couple of times where I'll be like, you're right, that actually was unfair, let's evaluate this. Um, and I feel like we generally enjoy spending time together. Um, I don't walk around berating myself. And if I, I can, I can now identify patterns where I'm like, okay, like just last Friday, I was at work as a massage therapist. I have a lot of time to think if no one's talking. And I could tell that my mind just took a jump. And like, I'm going to go to the temple when I get home. And I was like, hey, Eric, let's go to the temple because I now know where to go when those things start happening, as opposed to chastising myself for those things happening. Like my brain has its struggles. I know that. And God apparently is not taking that away right now, but he has given me recourse in his love which for me is going to the temple, finding answers to the script in the scriptures, like spending my time with him in prayer. To me, it's a sacred relationship and a privilege. And it's no longer like, I need to make sure I get my five minutes in before I doze off. Like, this is something I enjoy as much as I would look forward to meeting with a friend or going on a date with my husband or something.
0: Well, Tessa, you are um such an example and i want you to know that your book is such a blessing to so many people because a lot of times at church when we show up nobody sees what we've suffered nobody sees what we went through in our childhood or even what we're going through possibly in our lives at that moment and for you to be so vulnerable and share your story in your book it just allows others to feel like i'm not alone and I, I feel some of those same feelings and there is a way forward. There is light. And I love your book for that reason. Um, the last question that I always ask people when I'm interviewing them is how do you seek light? So how do you seek light today? I so see- you shared, you shared, you know, you've shared some of them. So mm-hmm. whatever you want to expound on that, that's great
1: i truly seek light in my scriptures like there is i i know and i now expect if i have a question or a concern or even if i need correction which i think sometimes can mean like i have a have something that i need to repent of but then also just learning how to do things better um I find it in the scriptures and I know that it's there and I expect it, which I think is a beautiful thing for me to be able to say, like, I expect God to talk to me. And I don't think that's entitled. That's just like a privilege of
0: mine as his daughter. Absolutely. Okay. Tessa, I'm everybody go get her book. You can buy it. Can you tell, I I know it's on Amazon because I saw it on there. Where else can they find it?
1: Currently it's on Amazon and then I'm working to get it into other places.
0: Okay, so liberated from silence, Tessa Jensen, and I want to thank you again for taking the time to share your story. And I'm grateful for the answers that I received to my prayers through reading your book. So thank you so much, Tessa. I am so grateful that you listened to my latest podcast. Please share these episodes with your family and friends I look forward to being with you again soon. Have a great day.